You're listening to an audiobook presentation of The Grendel's Shadow by Andrew Maine. You can purchase it for 99 cents on Amazon, on their Kindle store, on your Kindle, or on all major phones using the Kindle app, including iPhones, Androids, Blackberries, and Windows 7. It's also available on the Nook store and Apple's iBooks. Or you can buy this entire audio presentation uninterrupted or a physical copy at andrewmaine.com slash books. Chapter 20 Westwood took the lead as Alan followed, holding onto the cannon and satchel of napalm and grenades. Carpenter right behind, pulling their mounts with a rifle at the ready. When they got closer, they could see the opening was larger than it looked. Long and narrow, formed a kind of optical illusion. From a distance, it looked like barely a yard tall. As they got closer, they could see the entrance was higher than a person. Westwood kept a close look on the entrance as he searched the ground for clues. It was King Louis who gave him the first one. He and Alan turned to see Carpenter tugging at their harnesses. They refuse to go any further, she said. I guess they're smarter than we are. All right, tie them off so we don't have to walk back through the forest at night. That would be very bad. I think we all need to be a little bit more stealthy at this point. Carpenter tied the birds to a dried-out trunk vine. They still seemed agitated, but willing to accept the compromise. Westwood found a place to set the cannon, just within the range of the cave entrance. He showed Alan where to lay down with his rifle. Carpenter joined them and took up behind the cannon. Westwood knelt down to give them instructions. If it's just a cub and it comes out running, it's going to be more scared of you. It'll just want to get away, but you can't let it. We have to drop it with a cannon or a rifle. Otherwise, when the mother gets back, she's going to find a new place to hide and start this all over again. You don't think she'll just move on? Alan asked hopefully. Westwood pointed back at the collapsed cave. She didn't dig in there just for food. She was out to kill. How big do you think the cub is? Asked Carpenter. Thirty killings in six weeks big. Westwood picked up the satchel and began walking towards the ridge away from the entrance so he could approach from the side. He had one unlit torch tucked into his belt. The occasional blood splatter on the rocks told him it wasn't worth doing the trick while throwing the other torch in after the other. This cave was it. The edge closer to the opening, he could again feel the cool air near the mouth of the cave. This time his nose picked up something strong and repugnant. There was death inside. It was a ridiculous position for a biologist to hold, but deep down, he had a loathing for creatures that lived in filth. It was no less noble than an animal that lived in a sterile nest, but it felt vile, almost evil to him. Humans dealt with death almost reluctantly. The fishermen and women he saw stripped down the sharkling had an almost reverence for the beast. It became a respected part of the village. But to see an animal that gorged on flesh of another just to wallow in its death sickened him. He reminded himself of the very fact that he found the smell of lingering death repulsive is what made humans different than creatures like the one he was after. They were programmed by biology to see things differently. The smell got stronger. He neared the dark opening. There were blood splatters all around the entrance. He could only imagine what he would find inside. In the off chance there was a victim inside there, doubtful as that might be, he decided his conscience would sleep better if he called out. 
would warn whatever's inside, but it's fairly certain it wouldn't draw it out. Hello? He shouted. He could hear his voice echo faintly. Nothing stirred. Whatever was in there probably heard him approaching from twenty yards away and was remaining hidden. Westwood called out one more time to no response. He looked over at Carpenter and Alan. He trusted her aim and Alan's conviction. When the steamboat blew up, he got a glimpse of his real character. Despite his naive idealism and somewhat pompous behavior, he acted selflessly. Alan had his respect for that. Westwood held up a grenade so they could see he was about to throw it in. Carpenter gave him a thumbs up and leaned over the cannon. He flicked the safety off his rifle and prepared for all hell to break loose. He needed to throw it as far as he could and then get out of the way of the entrance so the blast didn't hit him and he didn't go deaf. He put his face a few inches away from the opening, leaned in to get a look. Nothing but darkness and the horrible smell. He pulled back and took a breath. With his thumb, he flicked up the top of the grenade and flung it as far as he could. The grenade sailed through the darkness, then landed with a metal clang. Forty feet, by his guess. Four seconds later, it exploded. A blast of smoke and dust shot through the mouth of the cave. The whole side of the ridge rung. He could feel a tingling sensation where his body leaned against the side of the entrance. That was closer than he wanted to be. He waited for the ringing in his ears to die down and listened. Deep inside the cave, he thought he could hear something. Taking the precautionary approach, he pulled out another grenade and threw it inside. Four seconds later, more dust and debris came flying out with the explosion. Westwood had a choice. He could throw in the napalm and hope it reached whatever was back there and run the risk of it falling short of a stunned animal about to come on at any moment very confused and very angry. Or he could set foot inside the cave throw the napalm at anything that moved. He peered around the corner and the question was settled. Filled with billowing smoke from the grenades, he wouldn't be able to see two feet with his torch. He was going to have to stand at the mouth of the cave and throw the napalm in overhand to make sure it went back as far as possible. He looked back at Alan and Carpenter. They didn't move an inch. Taking cautious steps, Westwood positioned himself in front of the cave and tried not to cough on the smoke. He could wait for it to clear, but there wasn't time. Sun was setting and they needed to finish this. Westwood lit the end of the napalm and threw it deep into the cave. The flaming wick vanished into the smoke. Then he heard the sound of broken glass. A moment later, a glow illuminated the smoke, casting flickering shadows onto itself. Deep inside, he could make out the shape backlit by the napalm. Its only motion was the flickering of the flames around it. Rifle at his side... Westwood lit his torch and moved into the cave. Chapter 21 With his back still pressed against the wall, Westwood moved deeper into the cave. The smoke from the grenade stung his eye and made it difficult to see. The flames from the napalm flickered further back, muted by the smoke. The outline on the floor remained motionless. As he got nearer, he could make out some detail. It was an animal, to be sure, longer than a man on its side. It came up mid-thigh to Westwood. Closer to it, he could make out what looked like a head and a tail, covered in thick, scaly, black fur starting at the shoulders. It bore a vague resemblance to the photo of the Vineland cat, only much larger. He inched closer, looking for signs of life. Its stomach remained motionless. Westwood pointed his rifle at its skull, just to the side of the thick brow ridge common to the animals of this world. 
For a moment, he thought he could hear a faint breathing. His ears, still ringing from the grenade, couldn't process the sound. Not wanting to take any chances, he fired a shot into the animal's skull. Didn't move. Fired again. Nothing. He aimed at the same spot as the last bullet and fired. Blood and bits of skull spurted onto his leg. The creature was dead. Westwood knelt down to touch the point where he had fired the first bullet. He could feel a mat of blood and hair with a thick lump on the outer surface of the skull. He took out his bowie knife, carved into the thick, smooth skin. The patch pulled away in a thick chunk, tossed it aside, and looked at the bone underneath. Even in the flickering light, he could see the crumpled bullet lodged into the surface like a meteor in a crater. The bullet had gone partially in, but hadn't come close to going through. If he hadn't fired the second and third in the same spot at close range, he was certain they wouldn't have gone through either. He wiped the blood off his knife on the dead animal and then froze. He heard something breathing. Then his instincts took over. Westwood threw himself on the floor just as a black shape pounced at him. Something grazed his head as it shot like a freight train through the space where he had just been standing. Westwood hit the floor, twisted his body, and aimed his rifle in the direction the shape had been traveling. He fired around. All he could see was smoke. He could sense it was still in there with him. If he had left the cave, he was certain he would have heard Carpenter fire the cannon. Westwood crouched down low to the floor and kept his rifle aimed where the creature had been last. Like him, he was out there trying to figure out what to do next. Low to the floor... Westwood used his hand to brace himself. His palm felt something sharp with a familiar texture. His finger traced over more. He didn't have to look away to know that he was crouching on a pile of human bones. Each move made a crunching sound, giving away his position. His hand fell upon the part of a jawbone. Westwood tossed it into the smoke to distract the creature. Hiding there, in a decaying pile of human remains, he was reminded of the fact that some animals brought live food back to the nest so their young could learn to kill. Wounded and defenseless, the parent would nudge their child to finish the job and learn what it was like to take a life. The thing in the shadows might be a juvenile, but probably killed before. Westwood was determined there'd be no more victims. He still had a grenade and bottle of napalm. Inside such close quarters, the grenade would more likely kill him than the creature. Carefully used, the napalm was an option, but using it meant he could accidentally trap himself in a burning cave. At this point, he was doubtful the creature was going to leave. He remained behind, either because it was too scared to leave the familiar nest, or because it had the same kind of determination as its mother and was out for a kill. He looked over at the drop torch. It was a few yards out of reach. As it flickered, it revealed a gruesome display of dirty bones and rotted flesh near it. Westwood reasoned that the creature spent most of its time in the cave, it had excellent night vision for sure, being nocturnal, probably avoided light when it was in the dark. Westwood made a quick lunge and grabbed the torch. A broken femur shoved into his side, ripping his shirt. He ignored it and pushed the torch in front of him. Doing that ruined the night vision the creature had in the cave, but also put a bright light in front of him. He hoped it would help him blend in with the background. Westwood could wait it out, pray for the animal to make a sound and fire in that direction, hoping to hit something vital but he knew that was a fool's plan. He had to outmaneuver the creature. The cave grew darker as the glow from the burning napalm began to die out. When it did, it was going to be the animal's game. Westwood's chances for survival dropped to nothing. He took inventory of what he had on him. 
His last grenade gave him an idea. He pulled it from the satchel and unscrewed the top. Turning it upside down, he dumped the black powder into the bag. In a sealed container, it was an explosive. In a loose casing, it was a flash grenade. The bright light and loud boom would be disorienting, but not deadly for him. At least not in theory. He pulled the wick from the bottle of napalm and poured the thick liquid into the pack. Still holding onto his rifle, ready to fire at anything that stirred, he threw the pack toward the middle of the cave. Somewhere, he heard the animal move. Westwood picked up the dying torch and threw it after the pack. The flames receded into the dark smoke, then hit something. The flame grew larger as the napalm-soaked cloth caught fire. Westwood covered his ears and shut his eyes as the black powder ignited. There was a loud flash and a bang. He could see the light through his shut eyelids. He had to leverage the distraction that instant. The moment he felt the hot wind from the concussion, he bolted straight through the center of the cave toward the entrance. Every muscle in his body struggled to move him forward. His feet crunching on bones and human remains, he hurled himself past whatever was between him and the entrance. The animal, stunned as it was, was only phased for an instant. Westwood reached the fading daylight of the entrance and threw himself on the ground. Before he could shout to Carpenter, he heard the cannon go off. An instant later, something huge landed on top of him. The wind was knocked out of him as he saw stars for a moment. He felt a searing pain in his spine and struggled to roll free face was suffocated in a mass of thick, bristly hair. He pulled his bowie knife loose and started stabbing into the dark pelt over and over. Blood splurted from the places between the bones where he could stick his knife. He kept stabbing and twisting, opening up gaping wounds. He pushed his other shoulder free and pulled his body out from underneath it, jabbing his knife into the creature like a mountain climber's axe to gain traction. He climbed to his feet. Alan and Carpenter came running. Carpenter paused for a moment to fire around into the skull near where the cannonball had struck. Westwood picked up his rifle off the ground and did the same till the brains and bones came flying out. Finally, he raised his rifle. God's sake! That's a monster! exclaimed Alan. We didn't know what was happening after you fired the first rounds. I was finishing off the other one. You got them both? Alan was floored with relief. Westwood stripped off his blood-soaked outer shirt and ripped off his undershirt. Alan looked at the fallen beast with a wary eye. How big was the cub? he asked. Westwood walked over to the tree line and picked up a long stick. He cut a point in it and walked over back near the damned animal. He shoved the spear into the spot of the ground near the creature. Finally, he answered Alan. They're both cubs. There were two of them. Alan tied his undershirt to the stick. Shit, said Carpenter. She looked at the fallen creature. She'd been sure this was the monster that came barreling out of the cave. This is just a cub? Alan couldn't wrap his mind around it. The body in front of him was as large as any terrestrial tiger. This is the baby version? Yep. Westwood buttoned his outer shirt. Westwood looked down at the creature for the first time in a reasonably good light. As the sun was setting and the moon was rising cast a long, blue shadow. He leaned in to look at the footpads. There were familiar three claws from the tracks he'd seen. Only on this creature they were spread apart, like a small dinner plate, a third the size of what he'd been looking for. Westwood walked over to the head. Half of it was caved in from the cannonball. It had struck right near the orbit of the eye. He doubted it would have gotten the same effect on the larger creature. Fate had given them a particular set of circumstances, they made it easy to line that animal up for the shot. 
knelt down and peeled the gums apart to look at the animal's teeth. The jaw was V-shaped, with jagged, flinty-looking teeth at odd angles. They looked like shards of black glass shoved in a black leather armrest. The teeth arrangement convinced them that it was at least the juvenile stage, and it was designed more like a scavenger. For a full-sized adult, though, scavenging could mean anything it could fit in its mouth. Over a foot across at the widest point on the cub, an adult mouth could fit a lot. Alan walked over to the shirt Westwood had tied to the shaft. What's with the flagpole? He asked. Westwood checked the saddle. So she'll know who to come looking for. He looked at the sun touching the horizon. Now, let's get back to town, fast. Carpenter and Alan hurried to their waiting birds. Hope these guys don't mind running at night, said Westwood, as Carpenter pulled up next to him. Trust me, they'll be ready to get as far away from here as possible. Carpenter made the click-click sound, and the three of them hurried off into the fading light, back to Grassy Bend. Chapter 22 They moved quickly in the darkness, sticking close to the ridgeline. The birds offered little protest, sensing the danger they were trying to distance themselves from. Alan clung to King Louie and did his best not to throw off the bird's balance. Despite the dark, Carpenter and her mount kept them moving at a pace faster than the one they had earlier in the day. The speed was assisted by the fact that they were now moving down the gradual slope of the ridge and not up it. As they rode, Alan tried to figure out exactly what Westwood's plan was. At the current rate of travel, they would make it back to town hours before the sun rose. The creature, the real creature, the mother of the two monsters behind them, could still be outside the town waiting for a victim. Looked back at the blood-soaked Westwood. The shirt on the stick was just a fallback, he realized. Westwood intended to draw the creature toward him that night. What was the plan, then? Were he and Carpenter just pawns on the chessboard, ready to be spent at Westwood's discretion? He didn't take Westwood for that ruthless of a man. But the hunt could change men and beasts alike. The birds did their best to stick to the open ridge when they could. When they had to move through the forest, they leaped from trunk vine to trunk quickly. Instinctively, they knew danger could come at them from any direction inside the dense forest. Two hours after nightfall, they were halfway back. Carpenter stopped at a clearing so the birds could drink water. As the birds dipped their heads into the water, Carpenter and Westwood wordlessly faced in opposite directions, keeping all sides covered. The anticipation was driving Alan crazy. He tried to King Louie next to Westwood and Lionheart. What is the plan? He whispered. Haul ass back to town, said Westwood with his eyes on the trees. What if it's out there? It is out there, said Westwood. Let me rephrase that. How do we avoid getting devoured by it? I'm still working on that part of the plan, Westwood shifted in his saddle. He looked past the water towards Grassy Bend. Right now, if they did what we told them, the town should be barricaded up. I told them to throw pepper flakes on the ground and to put lights on in vacant houses. To crank up record players if they have them. That should at least confuse it. Hopefully enough that it won't go after any single place tonight. Alan thought about the boulders with the gashes in them. You saw what it did to that cave. It could tear apart any building in town if it wanted to. Westwood nodded. I told him to stick to the cellars and stay quiet. That'll buy him some time. Time for what? Alan imagined the nightmare of being trapped in a dark basement under the beast. Time for me to think, Westwood nodded to Carpenter. 
She clicked and the birds finally finished drinking and sprinted back onto the trail. By Alan's reckoning, Westwood had another two hours to come up with a plan. As they passed the spot where Carpenter had pointed out the farm earlier in the day, his stomach began to knot. In the back of his mind, he wondered what his chances would be if he just aimed King Louis for parts unknown and got as much distance between him and the monster. He didn't have to be there. He was just there to cover the story. Of course, that wasn't true anymore, and he knew it. He was part of it. As Louis bounded from vine to vine along the edge of the forest, Alan could hear things stirring in the night. Creature or not, he knew he wouldn't last long out there. Heck, he thought he would be nothing to stop King Louis from eating him if he got the notion. He gave the bird a pat on its thick neck to remind him who his friends were. When Grassy Ben grew closer, Alan could make out parts of the river in the reflection of the large moon. The urge to run toward the river and away again was stifled by the thought of giant crabs. Alan shuddered. An hour later, they reached the high part of the ridge that overlooked the forest and separated them from the town. In the distance, the brightly lit civic center glowed along with a few of the gas lamps attached to the buildings. Somewhere in the wind, Alan thought he heard music. The town looked peaceful. Most importantly, thought Alan, it wasn't totally dark or ablaze. Westwood brought his ride to a halt on the ledge that overlooked the forest and the town. Carpenter and Alan took position on either side. The two of them waited for him to speak. It was time to hear what he'd planned. I'm still thinking, he said, without anybody actually asking. Is this how your plans usually come together? asked Carpenter. I gave up on plans a long time ago. Nature always has other ideas. So what do you use instead, she asked. The moment, mostly. Also a little insight. Westwood leaned back in his saddle. We learned today that these things are very hard to kill. Not sure a little cannon is going to drop this animal. A grenade off between the two cubs and left one standing. I had to drop two rounds at point blank to drive a hole through the skull. He looked down at the rifle in his hands. I'm not sure there's a weapon on this backwater that could take it down. Well, we do have the plastic explosive, offered Alan. Not an option under any circumstance, said Westwood, shaking his head. Besides, I chucked it into the lake 12 miles back. Alan's mouth went dry. You threw it away? It's the only thing that could stop it on this backwater. Westwood waited a moment before responding to Alan's outburst. Alan stared back at him, looking for an explanation. Carpenter looked back and forth at the two men trying to think of something to break the tension. She couldn't. Finally, Westwood spoke. Mr. Allen, as we discussed this morning, my preferred choice would be slightly more conventional, but this is a covenant world. I'm brought in because they want to solve their problem without breaking that covenant. But people might die. People have died. And many more will die from things like simple infections or old age. You and I might not agree with the life they've chosen for themselves and their children, but it's their choice, and neither you nor I have the right to change that for them. Alan was sore in every part of his body from the long ride and exhausting night, tired and angry at the creature. He knew Westwood was right. Westwood pointed toward the heart of the town. We got about 20 men with rifles on the roofs, waiting for a signal. We can drive it up the middle. They can get a clear shot. Then what? Asked Carpenter. I guess we shoot it again. 
plan involves a lot of shooting. Well, that's something, said Alan. What about the cannon? asked Carpenter. If we'd have more time, I'd figure out a placement for it. As is, I don't think it's going to work like last time, and I'm sure it'll take more than one shot to take it down. Westwood pointed to a place upriver. I think you two should take the forest through there and then come in through the river. You can then go straight up Main Street and into the Civic. Most likely she's on the side of town prowling around. I think that's the safest way for you guys to get back in. And what are you going to do? Asked Carpenter. Westwood grabbed the bag of remaining napalm and grenades. Make a big noise and let it know I'm coming. He lit the torch and kicked Lionheart forward. With the torch held high, Westwood and Lionheart flew down the hill like a fiery meteor headed straight for town. That man is suicidal, said Carpenter. Grendel's Shadow is available on Amazon for 99 cents. Buy it on your desktop or your Kindle. You can also use the Kindle app. Available on the iPad as well as all major phones, including iPhones, Blackberries, Windows 7, and Android. You can also look for it on the Nook Store and Apple's iBooks. If you'd like to purchase this audiobook in its entirety without interruption, or a physical copy of Grendel's Shadow, head to andrewmain.com books. This presentation has been read by Justin Robert Young. <laughs>